This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Today's guest speaker shares how the future of AI starts with better designed systems. Join Chris Van Pelt and I as we discuss how to enable AI in software development, why exiting figure eight set the stage for weights and biases, why the deep learning space needs new data science tooling, and why human in the loop systems will be the future of tech startups. This is Humane. Welcome to Humane. My name is David Jakobovich, and I will be your host throughout this series. Together, we will explore AI through fireside conversations with industry experts. From business executives and AI researchers to leaders who advance AI for all, Humane is the channel to release new AI products, to learn about industry trends, and to bridge the gap between humans and machines in the fourth industrial revolution. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Welcome back to the Humane Podcast. Today, I am joined by my guest, Chris Van Pelt, who is the founder of Weights and Biases. He's working on solving exactly that, Weights and Biases, with his new venture out of Silicon Valley. Chris, thanks for joining with us today. You bet. Thanks for having me, David. Yeah, this is super fun. You know, we've had the opportunity to chat off the record before about enabling AI technologies, how industries are changing, and you've now had a couple ventures all in the space. Why is enabling AI so important for you? Uh, Well, I think it's a paradigm shift in, in how we do software development. And especially over the last five years or so, We've seen this explosion in deep learning, and I think we're just getting started. I think, uh, yeah, it's gonna it's gonna really change the way that software is getting written. 
Now, that's super cool. You know, I attend a lot of hackathons and um, I know you guys have your own hackathon, if you will, that's more an open source call. Can you tell us more about how you're enabling AI by opening up to the community? Sure. So we recently started doing um, something we're calling benchmarks, which folks can think of as like a, a mini Kaggle competition, oftentimes focused around social good or something that we we believe is going to make positive change in the world. So we just launched a benchmark called Drought Watch, which is really cool. It's taking satellite imagery of um, various drought-prone regions in the world. And the task is to is kind of a call to folks in the machine learning community to create an algorithm to predict drought conditions before they happen so that we can um, take appropriate action and, and ensure that the impact on, on humanity is, uh, is minimal. I think that's really important, especially when you talk about social good. I've had the opportunity to chat with a few other ventures who are trying to tackle that as well. But this is great for the scale because I think food shortage is definitely something we're going to experience globally, even though we have now, uh, I've read some research earlier this year that, you know, each farmer supports, you know, more than 50 people with food, which is amazing to think about how we've gone away from assistance farming into a system where we can support many. But, you know, what do you think is going to happen if we can't reverse these droughts? Uh, well, I would I would wager bad things. Bad things would happen. I'm, I'm actually I'm from the, the Midwest, the heartland of America. So uh, I'm very familiar with um, what it means to have a bad year in the crops. I think stakes are, are lower here in a developed nation like uh, the U.S., but the stakes are much higher than other places in the world. So. Yeah, I would hope that uh, technology helps us to to minimize the impact on on human life that uh, that can often happen with um, the kind of crazy state that our our climate and and weather patterns are in. Yeah, and I, I like to be optimistic. So I know we, of course, have the weather where we are, but we do see good news out there where there's research saying, you know, China's planting more trees, you know, um, GIS and, and spatial images are being used now to do exactly what you've described, right? Try to predict climate, try to improve environments. So this is really cool. And if you were someone who's a data scientist today and you wanted to get involved in uh, this benchmarks, you know, mini Kaggle competition and droughts, how could I get involved today? Yeah, so I can I can get you a link. It's uh, just app.wnb.ai slash WNB slash droughtwatch. But we'll make sure to, to post that in the in the description as well. Awesome. So we'll have that in the show notes for everyone listening to the episode. Super cool. And, uh, you know, I love social good initiatives because it shows how together, you know, we can use data science to impact the world. And, you know, one of the comments you shared just a few minutes ago is how we're having a paradigm shift in software development. For those technical folks listening to the episode now, we know in the last 10 years, there's been this evolution of infrastructure as a service with things like Ansible and Terraform and, and all these products from HashiCorp and other uh, providers, which has started evolving into a data science as a service industry. And um, can you tell me more of your thoughts on, do you think we're moving towards data science as a service or what does that look like today? Well, you know, when we look at the space of kind of developer tools for machine learning, we see, we see two different approaches in the, in the marketplace. One is when it's kind of an end to end platform where you're buying a, a software package that will kind of automate 
or essentially give you data science as a, as a service from, from kind of data ingest and transformation to training of models to actually deploying of those models. At Weights and Biases, we've actually taken a, a different approach. We've created a very kind of targeted point solution that's meant to be able to be plugged into to kind of any existing open source solutions out there that you may be using for other parts of the, of the pipeline. And instead of trying to create an entire platform as a service, we're, we're really focusing on the training and experimentation around creating models. So yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see kind of where the market goes in terms of, of teams feeling comfortable kind of buying into something that's end to end or wanting to, to pick and choose from a field of kind of quickly evolving pieces of software. I think it's definitely very, very early days in this space. It's early days, but it's exciting days because if you're a data scientist working in software like Python, before the past couple of years, it's been really difficult to manage experiments and you know seeing those results and you know weights and bias. You know now you've been working on it as your new venture. It sounds like your previous venture, Figure Eight, inspired you to bring about this new venture, weights and bias. And how do both services tie in together. For those who don't know Figure 8, Figure 8 is a, a fantastic company for helping you with all your data labeling solutions globally with computer vision, natural language processing, and has had a huge impact in the AI industry. And uh, you know now you've evolved from that venture to your new one. How do you think they tie together? Everything starts with Figure 8. In uh, the majority of of the enterprise, these models that are being created are, are supervised machine learning models, which means they need training data. And uh, especially with, with deep learning models, they're they're very hungry for for more data. So, you know, figure eight can can give companies that that data in a highly scalable, efficient, and accurate manner. So really before you could even use the weights and biases tool to, to build a model, you'd need a solution like figure eight to actually label the data. And then after you, you know, oftentimes after you do build a model, you would continue to incorporate some form of labeling in your in your end-to-end pipeline. So this is something figure eight calls human in the loop, you know, essentially active learning, where uh, as your, your model is deployed in the wild, you hopefully kind of target examples that uh, maybe the model didn't do do well on to actually go back through a labeling pipeline and get labels on to to kind of further improve your model as you as you retrain it. I think human in the loop is so important today, especially in data science. You know, I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of students on, on capstone projects when we're training them through boot camps to get uh, upskilled. And you know, often when a student works on a project the first time, they're surprised that they can't get necessarily 99% accuracy or get fantastic results in their data. And especially for those working in images and, and text, and and I tell them, you know, have you considered labeling some of your data or seeing what sources are out there? And I think one of the big misnomers out there is that it's just magic, right? The data is just magically good. And, and, you know, when you see companies like Google saying, oh, we have a 99% accuracy that we can predict this disease, little does the consumer often know that a company like Google has spent 
tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of years of compute and processing power on working on data sets and labeling data to get it to a good enough steady state that now they can outperform a human and still have humans in the loop. Is that a fair assessment, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, anyone who's logged into a website and and seen Google's reCAPTCHA is seeing an example of that, right? When you're when you're asked to look at uh, the various images and select which ones have um, streetlights in them, you're you're labeling you're labeling machine learning data that will be used to likely retrain models or or somehow inform some of the data science that that folks at Google are doing. So it's a it's a very kind of core aspect of of any real world kind of mature machine learning application. I think that's so fun and cool because especially if you're someone who's not a developer by trade, you may think, oh, the recaptures that you go on google.com or other websites seem to be preventing bots and there are these security features to ensure that your data is safe and nothing bad's happening. But the truth is next time uh, you're completing one of those recaptures and you're either sliding across the puzzle piece or you're you know, clicking the parts of the image to have a stop sign, um, consider that you're actually helping AI get better. So that's enabling AI. And that is, in essence, crowdsourcing. Yeah, totally. I remember in the early days with uh, Luis Van An, who was the original creator of ReCAPTCHA, for those that remember, was you would see like two snippets of, of text, essentially. And um, that was a, a very like pioneering and inspirational application of, of crowdsourcing and, and definitely led to some of what we created at, at Crowdflower Figure 8. That's awesome. And, um, you know, I love everything that's, again, happening in how we're evolving in the AI industry. So it's it's so interesting that, yes, data labeling is becoming even more important because it is one of the starting stages when you're solving problems. But then when you get deeper into the models that you're deploying and solving, you have your new venture, Weights and Biases, which is here to help better understand what's going wrong or what's going right when you're training. And could you maybe give us a practical example of, you know, what's one of the models that you've been seeing success with, or maybe a high-level use case on how the weights and biases tools have been helping improve experimentation? Sure. So as a software developer who's been writing software for, oh God, nearly 20 years now, you know, I had, I had really taken for granted how, how good the developer tooling was for, for writing kind of basic web software or UIs or, you know, I'm talking about tools like GitHub, Git, um, our various kind of IDs. And as I started to build more deep learning models, I, you know, quickly saw that uh, just the tooling in the space was pretty lacking. And it, and it is, as mentioned earlier, a, a different paradigm. So, you know, when we're, when we're writing regular code, we can kind of change a couple lines um, and that might change some logic, but then we get uh, get to tell us exactly what changed and, and we can kind of go back and, and see what happened. When we change a couple lines of our model and then retrain it, the actual, the weights and the biases that are generated through the training process, every one of those values is going to change. So, you know, version control really falls apart. And as we talk to to teams and individuals, in the space, we were kind of asking what, what folks were doing and, and everyone was doing a very ad hoc, they put in place a very ad hoc experimentation kind of tracking system. So this usually consisted of 
of like a, a spreadsheet where they could write down maybe some notes every time they, they retrained a model. And maybe if they were advanced, they would be writing a, a JSON file or something that, that specified all of the input parameters or configuration options so that they could have some record of, of what, was, what was tried. So that was really the genesis story of, of weights and biases was first just trying to address this, this issue of, of kind of keeping track of what you had done and then hopefully better enabling teams to reproduce any results that, that had, been, had been gotten in the past. So the way we see teams use this today, we're working with a number of, of folks in the um, autonomous vehicle space in Silicon Valley. It's definitely a, a really hot, a hot sector and they're building lots of models and they have um, large teams that are all trying to collaborate with each other. So we've seen it have a, a really positive impact on, on the team's productivity and just ability to, to keep track of, of what's happening. I think that's so smart because just like the use case you gave before, Chris, you know, Git's been around for a quick minute, right? It's been around since the 90s. You know, it's uh, become the leading version control system. I know this year there was a report uh, from GitLab that said that Git version control, now over 95% of developers use the Git version control system. They're not using, you know, Mercurial or the other ones anymore. And so this begs the question, you know, how are we going to track models and model development? And that's really exciting to see uh, the impact you've been having with the different ventures on their projects. And, you know, of course, uh, computer vision, especially with autonomous vehicles, is a fast-growing industry. On uh, one of my other episodes for Humane, I got to speak with a chief science officer at a, at a Fortune 500 company about level zero through level five and where we think uh, computer vision's going and how far we are in the autonomous vehicle race uh, from what you've seen with your partner companies or maybe just the industry as a whole. Where do you think we are in that life cycle of getting to autonomous? Oh man, you're gonna make me predict when we're gonna to get to to level, <laughs> level zero. You know, I will say, you know, having worked with with some of the leading teams in the industry, I have been blown away by how good kind of individual model performance currently is. So I'm I'm talking about you know looking at say the model that's just uh, putting bounding boxes around objects of interest. I remember being like really blown away at, at how how accurate kind of the existing models that I that I've seen are and how they're able to detect like little itty bitty humans like way off in the distance. That being said, the kind of the, the full package involves, you know, likely an ensemble of models and and all sorts of decision making and and of course being robust to to different environments and I'm not going to commit to a, a date. I think we're um, we're at least a, a few years out before we see any any kind of meaningful usage of the of the technology. But uh, yeah, it's exciting times for sure. Yeah, no, it's super exciting, and I totally understand the and the date part. But I think we can see the example you just gave on the bounding boxes is so relevant. You know, one of the platforms I use a lot is Facebook with all my friends and, you know, posting images from events that we go to. And I remember earlier in the summer, Facebook had this issue where images were no longer showing. And, you know, they were showing with the text. And it would say something like, 
image is two humans with a dog or image is house and person on bicycle. And it was so fascinating to see behind the scenes how they were actually classifying these images. And perhaps they were using these bounding boxes and other techniques to do that. But it drills at home how relevant it is today because when I would go to these events with friends and we'll say, oh, show me a picture of your dog, right? And then they go to Facebook and they pull up the images and they search dog. And sometimes you would see images that you'd be like, where's your dog? There's no Boston Terrier in that photo. But then when you inspect the image very closely out in the corner or very far in the background, there was a dog. So it's really amazing to see the breakthroughs we've been having uh, in AI technology. Yeah. I mean, I think captioning, especially like converting an image into a, a string of natural language is, is fascinating. And, and, you know, it was really computer vision that, that, uh, really started the, all the hype around deep learning a few years back. And, and it's been really exciting to see the advances in natural language processing over the last couple of years. And then with a, a use case like kind of image captioning, you you kind of get to marry both worlds, which is, uh, which is cool for sure. Yeah, that's super cool with image, but then also to text, like you just mentioned with natural language processing, you know, one of my favorite ventures that I've been following over the last few years is Grammarly. And Grammarly helps you with spelling and correcting. It's like Microsoft Word, but, uh, you know, for any any software you're using to get those corrections. And it used to be really simple, you know, it's like Turnitin.com or Microsoft Word for the corrections. But just in the past couple of years, they've started doing NLP integrations where, you know, oh, you have a certain phrase. And because that phrase has appeared so many times in other research papers, they can make smarter recommendations. So I think we're starting to see that with NLP and uh, the industry is evolving really fast. I know there was even research that came out from a joint effort with um, IBM and, and Harvard on this glitter project where you could generate articles based on previous data. I even have uh, one of the students I'm working with who's working on a rhyming scheme to build their own you know, song generator. It's, it's amazing what's happening with text today. What are you seeing as some of the advances in text as well? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest examples of, of late of kind of something that made a big splash is OpenAI's GPT-2 and uh, their choice to, to not to not open up the the weights, I think now a few folks have actually gotten the insane amount of compute resources needed to actually generate those those weights and and give it to the world. But there's you know a lot of, of fear, especially in the the current time around you know what what it means for something to be fake or fake news, and and these um, these algorithms are yeah shockingly good at generating something that sounds very reasonable out of, out of nothing, you know, it's like truly, I guess, fake. So yeah, I mean that, that, uh, along with the transformer architecture, which is kind of a new deep learning architecture are definitely the, the, the big topics that we, we see in the natural language space. And it sounds like even with what we're seeing in natural language or computer vision, you know, I know you just mentioned about the deep fakes and the whole industry. We even saw there was one of the presidential candidates recently that pretended to be sick and had a call in from Skype. And then on that, there was actually a doctored video of the candidate using someone else's voice. So it, it is, you know, quite interesting what's happening today, especially because 
all the people in the audience thought it was really the candidate. So it begs the question on authentication and fingerprinting and spoofing where that's going. But I think less of the fear mentality, but more the optimism mentality that it's going back to the human in the loop systems that you mentioned earlier. You know, we are going to continue to need humans for these cognitively challenging tasks to authenticate or to verify or to improve. So whether you're generating an article or running an experiment with an autonomous vehicle or checking if a candidate is really live streaming, You have to verify that. And although there are some signals today that a human looking at something, we can tell it is doctored, that may not be possible in a few years. But uh, I think you're right. It's all about the weights and biases. And to pivot into that topic, let's you know, go in a more fundamental level. So we have data and data can be labeled and and it can be used to be run into a system and ultimately generate a model that can be deployed, right? But data could have issues. And one of those issues is bias. And how would you define bias for our audience today? Well, bias is um, essentially anytime there's some underlying pattern in your data that is exhibiting, um, it's not getting after the the core of what you're trying to predict, but instead is systematic of, of something else in your in your data collection process. So a simple example is to is to say, let's say we're building a model that predicts the likelihood that someone who has been incarcerated will have a an episode where they're 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 kind of re or brought back into the system. So we can kind of take our existing data and create this this model, but there's likely like systemic bias in our own our own prison system that is is likely you know racially biased that would make these models then more likely to predict certain races to you know commit a crime again or to predict that they would commit a crime again when you know, in, in reality, that's, that's not, that's not a factor that, that should play into the model's prediction. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, I I watched this documentary a few months ago on a flight and they were talking about even in Brownville, New York and parts of New Jersey, exactly about that, you know, uh, do more police monitor streets because of certain demographics. I mean, is that something that we should do or shouldn't do? And, you know, I think what you gave really good in that example on bias, that it is almost, dare we say, a loop, right? It's a self-perpetuating habit that can repeat over time, but ultimately it shows up in all systems. And whether these systems are closed or open AI systems, we see the bias showing up. And, you know, how can we minimize it? If I was a researcher today, like, what are some actionable steps I could do to either minimize bias or discover or just be aware that it exists? Yeah, I mean the the best thing any data scientist can do is try to deeply understand their their data set. So, in the initial kind of training data creation and curation process, there's there's a number of great tools out there that allow you to kind of slice and dice that that data and and kind of pull all sorts of statistics at, uh, over various axes. And then I would say the the same is true for once you've created a model to kind of measure how the outputs of that of that model are are performing across say an evaluation data set or some set of data you know we 
at Weights and Biases think about bias a lot. And, you know, we, we hope that uh, some of the tools that we've kind of embedded in our platform will enable data scientists to, to surface these kinds of issues. So just easier ways to, to essentially visualize and query into how the model performed is, is really one of the, the core feature sets of, of the Ways and Biases tool as well. So I wish there were like a silver bullet that you could just say, you know, hit the no bias button. But the reality is it's, it's a lot of work and it just takes a, a deep understanding of both the, the underlying data and the, and the model itself. Yeah, we should make a no bias button. That'd be super cool. Like instead of saying that was easy, no bias, no bias, no bias. But it's a good reminder, right? Because when you think of design thinking, you have to constantly think, you know, what are is my checklist that I can ensure that I'm building the best robust system and I'm covering all endpoints? Because if you don't, it's just like what you mentioned earlier, Chris, you have this issue where an incarcerated patient, you know, is being uh, reacclimated to society, but then you know, the bias of society is not helping that person reacclimate and could potentially, you know, increase the risk that, you know, something non-desirable happens to that, that individual. So yeah, I think design thinking for bias is a huge part there. And perhaps that's something we're going to continue to see to emerge. I know this year, some of the big words coming out, these buzz phrases have been explainable AI and understandable AI. These are you know, making systems that, you know, we understand the bias, we understand how the data is creating a result. What do you think of that general term? Should the industry be under explainable AI or what's your thoughts there? Uh, well, I think it's a big topic today because deep learning especially is really difficult to explain. And we're transitioning from a world where, you know, with, with boosted trees or a simple regression, it was it was much easier easier to explain kind of what, what the model is doing. But as we create these deep learning models with with uh, tens of thousands or millions of parameters, it becomes really difficult to explain why any given output was chosen or or kind of what their thought process was. I think there's a lot of folks working on on better tools and ways to to kind of visualize into the network to be able to to answer some of those questions, but there's a huge number of use cases that uh, will just not use deep learning because of this explainability issue and instead use uh, more traditional machine learning approaches so that they can easily kind of walk back and, and see the various branches of decision-making that the, the algorithm made. Right. And some of those traditional techniques could be like a decision tree, as you mentioned, you know, being able to see each decision. But the truth is, as we're becoming a more data first society, which is soon becoming AI first, reinforcement learning as a theme is emerging. And, you know, that is part of that deep learning, right? And learning and growing over time. What have you seen about the change in reinforcement learning? Is, is that something that some of the clients are using with weights and biases? Well, one of our earlier, earliest clients is OpenAI, and they're you know, real pioneers in the, in the reinforcement learning space and have, have open sourced a number of tools themselves that are kind of industry standard now or used by, by lots of folks doing RL. You know, reinforcement learning is, is definitely more on the, the frontier of um, ML. But what's been interesting is in some of our, our conversations with, with actual enterprises, we're seeing folks use RL, uh, at least in, a, in an experimental context, 
which has been really interesting to see. And, you know, it's just a, at a hackathon um, then at Facebook, the PyTorch hackathon and, and saw one of the one of the groups, the really cool project using reinforcement learning to, to actually do kind of a, a classification task or something that, that maybe you could just kind of plug into to real world use cases. So, yeah, I think it's still early days, but it's been it's been awesome to see kind of more exposure out of the the just the pure kind of research and gameplay world and seeing RL used in, in other scenarios that could make sense. Yeah, one of the scenarios I've also seen at a hackathon recently with RL is about when you're doing certain hand gestures that the system can learn over time what those gestures are. So if it's trying to do a translation of sign language, it can improve over time. So I agree a lot of these live learning methods in, in RL is very exciting and still early days, but definitely part of what we're going to see as coining data science as a service continues to evolve. What else are you noticing as maybe since you work with a lot of researchers, a lot of developers, any other you know research trends that are emerging today that you know people should think about? Yeah, I mean, I guess the the biggest trend I'm I'm seeing is is kind of more excitement around the unsupervised machine learning use cases. So being able to take data that hasn't been labeled by any humans and actually surface or unearth patterns simply by kind of looking at at all the data that that to me is super exciting. I think there's you know the the likelihood that there's you'll still continue to have very hybrid approaches, but as, as kind of compute becomes, uh, continues to become less constrained and data sets become larger, we're, we're seeing these models actually kind of pull apart underlying patterns or categories in the data without ever being told what those, what those categories are, which, um, is really cool. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, there's so many use cases that we can think of, right? Like you just have images that have never been trained before, but then that technique, right? Whichever technique that's going to be, if that's something with open AI or with weights and biases is going to help you classify that data, which I think is fascinating. And, you know, one of the things you mentioned is three themes I've been hearing consistently throughout our entire conversation today. You know, humans are still going to be in the loop. Data sets are going to continue to become larger and compute is going to become less constrained. And I think the two parts there that we're still as society trying to solve is how do we, you know, better work with data sets as they become larger? And that ultimately seems to be around compute or this big O notation and, and how to process data. You know, what do you think is a way that we're going to be able to better solve compute? Is it just let's get thousands of GPUs and TPUs to do our processing at more marginal costs or, you know, other breakthroughs in algorithms and different types of hardware? I know a lot of companies are coming out with AI chips now. So, you know, what do you think might be potentially something that helps solve that problem? Yeah, I mean, I think it's all about the the custom hardware, right? So the reason NVIDIA GPUs are, are winning as the accelerator for machine learning is because they have the best library in the market to do the the operations that, um, that deep learning networks do a ton of. You know, when you when you think about like AMD and their GPUs versus NVIDIA, there's there's not a ton of difference in in 
in how they're implemented or kind of the amount of compute that either one of them can do. What the difference is, is NVIDIA has a, a much better library to enable developers to actually leverage those those operations. And then, you know, we're seeing Google with their, their Tensor processing unit um, that is, uh, you know, really well supported by TensorFlow. They're definitely gaining gaining market share. And there's a huge number of startups trying to to make hardware chips that can do um, all of this matrix math really quickly and uh, highly, highly parallelized. So I think, you know, those are going to be continued innovation there and, and likely some, some kind of big step gains as, uh, as the market matures. I mean, another interesting thing is like as researchers create these new model architectures, the hardware makers are always kind of playing, playing catch up. So yeah, I mean, I think as as the research continues to evolve, and and we we kind of decide as a community which which approaches we want to kind of invest more in, then then those approaches get further optimized, and it's easier for us to make models, and hopefully it's this big virtuous uh, cycle. Sure, and as a community, one of the big uh, updates we saw in the last few months was you know TensorFlow and Keras becoming very much tied together with their APIs with the emergence of TensorFlow 2.0. I know there's so many different softwares, including in the Python language and others to do machine learning today. But what have you seen as some of the things that you've liked in the new TensorFlow 2.0 release or other AI packages that you've been working with? Uh, yeah, so TensorFlow 2 is cool. should be coming out in the next... Uh next month or two officially, um, which is exciting. You know, I've been teaching classes on, on machine learning for the last uh, few years and um, have always been a huge fan of Keras and, and that's the, the kind of abstraction that we use for, for all of our, our course material. So it's great to see it embedded directly in the library. You know, I think the main, the main selling point of, of TensorFlow 2 is the eager execution. So making the execution model look a bit more like uh, PyTorch and, and easing the ability for developers to kind of debug various operations in their, in their compute graph. Um, it's definitely exciting. We're continuing to see, you know, the market really, really gravitate towards PyTorch, uh, especially for, for research. And then oftentimes kind of after a model has been, been really dialed in, folks might, might re-implement it in, in TensorFlow to actually deploy it. But, uh, the PyTorch folks are hard at work at, at making their deployment um, pipeline as, a, as efficient as possible. So you're hearing it here first. If you are a developer researcher in the Python space, if you're a data scientist wanting to get in Python, PyTorch and TensorFlow are the two big packages, right, to do a lot of that research and to work with all the state-of-the-art algorithms. You know, I think one of the consistent themes we're seeing uh, throughout this entire conversation today is technology is moving so fast, and that's why it's even more important than ever before to have humans in the loop, right? To ensure that we're tracking processes, that we're ensuring that deployments are accurate or as best as possible, and to ensure that whatever goals you're aiming to solve, you're minimizing bias or at least recognizing where bias occurs in your system. It's going to be really exciting to see where the rest of 2019 takes us in research and even beyond that. Anything else from Weights and Bias that uh, our fans can learn about today in addition to, again, your social hackathon on droughts that you'd like to share? 
Yeah, I mean, we uh, we actually recorded a number of kind of classes around deep learning and machine learning using Keras and TensorFlow. So if you head to our website, wb.com, and then um, you can click on the, the classes link, or it's tutorials, sorry. You can check them out and, and give them a try. We'd, uh, we'd love for you to, to use our tool and hopefully we, we help you unearth any, any underlying bias or, or issue with your model and, and um, enable you to debug it quickly. And yeah, we'd love to, love to hear from you. It's, it's free to use, so please check us out. Awesome. Yeah, I've had the opportunity to play with the tool myself. I've looked at the code on GitHub. I've, you know, worked with the implementation in Python. It's super easy, super fun. So hopefully some of you check it out and uh, excited to see where we continue to move in the human AI industry. Chris, thanks so much for being with us today. You bet. Thanks for having me, dude. Hey, humans. Thanks for listening to this episode of Humane. My name is David Jakobovich, and if you like Humane, remember to click subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Luminary. Thanks for tuning in and join us for our next episode. New releases are every Tuesday. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.